We're going to study God's Word, so if you would open up to the New Testament book of Ephesians chapter 4. So let's start reading, if you'll follow along. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. For it says, when he ascended on high, he took the captives captive. He gave gifts to people. But what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth? The one who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens to fill all things. And he himself gave from that place of ascendancy. Paul says, he, Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. Then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness and the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part." So let me ask you a question. Just think about where where you are. What's your life purpose? I know I have friends who have like a written formal life purpose. Jonathan Edwards, a couple hundred years ago, he had all these resolutions, things that he committed himself to live by these principles, these truths in accordance with these things. I know families who have a formal family vision statement that's actually written out somewhere that hope, hopes to give guidelines and guardrails to how they want to live and what they want to pursue. It's their way of saying, we're going we're gonna to draw a line in the sand. This is what we're about. By God's grace, this is what we're about. But sometimes we'll talk about vision. A lot of times in churches, we'll talk about vision, but we don't necessarily stop and say, what, what, what do we mean by vision? That's an ambiguous word that's overused. What does it really mean? Here's a definition I came across this week, and I found it helpful. Vision is a powerful picture of a preferable future that inspires present action. Again, a powerful picture of a preferable or desirable, longed-for future that inspires present action. I would submit to you, friends, that Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 is apostolic vision. Really, because the Apostle Paul is writing under divine inspiration, this is God's Vision. This is the preferable future, a longed-for future that inspires present action. This is a blueprint for the church. This is a vision statement for the family of God. It's, it's God drawing a line in the sand and says, this is what you're going to be. This is what my people, my children, my family is going to be. So you read Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, and it's telling us this is how we reach maturity in Christ. 
It's the roadmap. It's the blueprint to maturity. And you see that the whole chapter is oriented toward maturity. The, whole, the arrow's trajectory is flying toward maturity. You see there in verse 13, look down with me at verse 13. Until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of God's son growing into maturity. So you see this unity and maturity as the end result of what this is all about. Maturity in verse 16 is what? It's this vibrant faith community of people who are strengthening one another. Like members of, uh, like parts of your body make other parts of the body stronger. Like if you take something in your hand and you carry it upstairs, it's not just your arms getting stronger, your legs are getting stronger, right? That's the picture of maturity. It's a life-giving, healthy, functioning church that's growing in the grace of God for his glory together. So all along the way, the Apostle Paul is describing what maturity looks like, what maturity sounds like. So we're going we're to see this passage puts four handles, if you will, four handles on the pursuit of maturity that we can grab hold of. The first is this, the manner of maturity, every effort. The manner of maturity, every effort. And you can look at that that next bullet point there in your notes, if you've got the notes, how do I walk worthy of the call? If you ask that question to this text, the answer is Paul starts by saying, let's start with humility and gentleness. That's where it all begins, right? This is, um, this is why when we as a church, we talk about our eight pursuits, the BH8, the eight pursuits that we go after as a church. We've got this one right there in the middle. We pursue kindness. We welcome Graciously, It's the same kind of idea that there should be an ethos. There should be an, a culture, an attitude in the church that's shaped by the gospel. And the gospel creates tender souls, right? Now, if our story is we've received mercy from God, then we're really good at giving mercy to people. It creates that kind of tender, gentle, humble culture in the church. There's a, a novel that I absolutely love. My wife and I have read it aloud together. It's called Gilead by Marilyn Robinson. And in the novel, um, old Robert Boughton is one of the characters in the story. And, and he has a son. He has many children, but he has a son named Jack who's a prodigal. And Jack has brought shame on the family. And he's, made he's been a terrible son. He's made, had terrible lifestyle choices. Um, but, but Jack, the prodigal son, travels back to small town Iowa where, where his dad lives. And despite Jack's, uh, Jack's story, Jack's past and his, his failures, his dad, old Robert Boughton, loves this prodigal son. And uh, as you walk through the book, Jack's father, old Robert Boughton, is dying. And in that moment, Jack's siblings are all going to leave their places and travel back to small town Iowa where, where the dad is to be with the dad. But Jack is realizing, I cannot look my family in the face after the shame I've brought on the family. I can't look my siblings in the face. So, so he goes, Jack goes to Mr. John Ames. He's the, he's the old and dear friend of Jack's dad, Robert Boughton. And he goes to Ames and he says, I need to leave. I'm about to leave. And Mr. Ames is actually narrating the whole novel. And he tells this story in first person. Here's how it reads. Jack stopped and looked at me and said, you know, I'm doing the worst possible thing again, leaving now. My sister will never forgive me. She says, this is it, Jack. This is your masterpiece. 
and Ames narrates this. He says, it, it was truly a dreadful thing Jack was doing, leaving his father to die without him. It was the kind of thing only his father would forgive him for. You see, Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And he, and he said something about the core of his being. He said, I, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Or it could be translated, I am gentle and lowly of heart. So Jesus says, I'm gentle and lowly of heart. And Paul says, let the church be gentle and lowly of heart. Let the church be marked by gentleness and humility. You think about it. If God's kindness has led you and me to repentance, maybe, maybe our kindness in God's grace will lead other people to repentance. If, if we as a church, if we say to a shame-ridden, sin-wracked world, come to Jesus, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, come and he will give you rest. He's meek, he's lowly, he's gentle with sinners. We've got gospel-weighted blankets that offer warmth to sinners in Christ. That's, that's the beauty of the gospel. And Paul is asking for that. He's painting a vision of a preferable future that inspires present action. Inside the fellowship of the church, that's what it should feel like. You notice the next words down there in verse 2 and 3. With, just pay attention to this language, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. What I take from that, I think the language is so clear that um, church, church fellowship is supposed to cost you something. Church fellowship is supposed to cost me something. It should feel like there are moments, many of them, where I'm dying to myself to serve, to bless, to wash your feet. It's this way in our notes. If church membership doesn't involve effort, we're doing it wrong. Right? That's his language. Patience. <laughs> what does that suggest? Bearing with this idea of forbearance. Bearing with one another. Making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You know what militates against this? There's so many things that we could talk about. Western individualism militates against this notion. Cancel culture militates against this notion in Ephesians chapter 4. Because cancel culture says the moment you and I disagree on one of my favorite things... I, we have to be sworn enemies. Like we have to part company. I have to cancel you. I have to block you. I have to do la la la. I'm not listening. Right. That's what, that's what cancel culture does. Cancel culture is, is ready to break fellowship over secondary doctrines. Um, it's ready to break fellowship over personal preferences. Even I, <laughs> um, some, some time back, I had someone send me an email uh, telling me that they were leaving the church because on one fateful Sunday, I untucked my shirt. And she told me why it was. I, I didn't know why I'd untucked my shirt or that there was a reason, but she told me why it was that I untucked my shirt. And it was because I was caving into culture. Um, and I wrote her back pleading and trying to say, no, here's, here's what was going into that. Um, but I, I never heard back, right? Because I have to block you now. You did the thing that, that no uh, self-respecting minister is supposed to do. Look, that happens in so many different ways. A church sings too many hymns. Uh, so, you know, what a, what a dead, dry church. Church doesn't sing enough hymns. What a shallow church, right? We have all these ways of saying us and them. You're now in the category of the people who 
who are that way. Friends, if, if our small group splits, the tension in the small group splits us. Maybe if it's in an area that isn't affecting the gospel. It's not, it's an area where Christians are free to disagree. And if that leads to a split in our small group, it's not a sign that we all have strong convictions. It's a sign of spiritual immaturity. There's this picture in Ephesians chapter 4 and it says, patience ought to be evidently seen in our lives. Making every effort ought to be evidently seen bearing with one another in love forbearance our unity in Christ is rooted in the gospel so we contend for our together for the gospelness as a church Paul says you get this right Paul says walk worthy of the calling how how do you walk worthy of the calling he doesn't just leave that to be generally interpreted in whatever direction we think he says here's how you start walking worthy of the calling this is the gate of a church that's walking worthy of the calling with all humility gentleness with patience bearing with one another in love making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace that's how the church walks worthy of the call do we have that attitude among us is that attitude in you is it in me so then paul points to the foundation of gospel unity so we'll move to the next point the melody the melody of maturity god's gospel so our unity friends is not shallow our unity is not mere tolerance uh, we're not just tolerating one another. What, what's the basis of Christian unity? What's the ground of Christian unity? It is not just a commitment, that mutual commitment to be nice to each other. It's far more, um, far richer than that. So we're going to hit a few things kind of in, in quick, rapid succession here, kind of a speed round if you're following with your notes. Our unity is grounded in the Trinity. Our unity is grounded in the Trinity. Look at Paul's language there in verse Four, one spirit. Verse five, one Lord. That is a reference to Jesus Christ, the Lord. One God and Father. Verse six, of us all who is above all and over all and through all. Our, our unity is grounded in the Trinity. The, the Trinity, friends, is not just you know this uh, some Christian notion that was argued about in history and then gave us this document called the Nicene Creed in 325 A.D. No. Our, the Trinity is who God is. There is not another God but the triune God. It's who God is. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one. Same in substance, equal in power and glory. And, and here's the thing. Trinitarian theology has implications for the life of the church. For the way that we live together. This God who is three persons in one God creates a fellowship, creates a church with many members, and yet they are one body. So three persons in one God creates a church that is many members in one body. In other words, our unity is a running, real-time video analogy of the very essence of who God is. Our unity points to who God is. Let me put it the other way. If we're not making every effort, if we're not bearing with one another in love, if we're not unified, we are, friends, misrepresenting God. This is who God is. Next point is this. Our unity is grounded in gospel truth. 
grounded in gospel truth, the closest bonds that we share with any other human beings on this earth, those closest bonds pale in comparison to the bond that we share as God's redeemed family. What does the apostle Peter say? He says, once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you together as the corporate body of Christ, you have received mercy. You are the mercy recipient family. That's who you are. That is our deepest core identity. We are the redeemed. Sometimes in, in church, when I would grow up, my dad would sometimes gather the, the people and stand them up, and he would recite the psalm that says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. doesn't mean just, just saying it, but living it, demonstrating that we are, we are that people, that joined together, blood-bought people with a church. The song... Uh, we Are the World came out in 1985. It was kind of a collection of all the, the artists, popular artists of the day, responding to some things that were going on in the world then. And it, we are the world. We are the children. Um, and it was hugely popular. Well, I went to VBS that year. I was 10 years old in 1985. I went to VBS that year at our church, and the uh, kids' ministry directors had rewritten. They, they took the melody of the song, We Are the World, and rewrote it as We Are the Church. And uh, it, it was even cheesier than you're imagining right now. And so we all sang, we are the church, we are his children, right? So we changed whatever words could be changed to still make it work. And we, uh, we did that. And it was definitely cheesy. Never want to relive that. But, uh, but it was true. We are, we are the church. We are his people called out of darkness that we might proclaim his praises in the earth with the church, Jesus has made us one. The word that's used so often in this little section right here, seven times it's used, indicating utter perfection, one body. You see that? One spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is above all and through all and in all. This one Lord, one faith, one, one. This is the melody of a church that sings together. A church that sings the gospel, lives the gospel as one family. Years ago, I attended a, a conference and it was held by a small network of churches, kind of a denomination, a network of churches and they were meeting together. Uh, the distinctives of this church, they were actually celebrating like their 30th year anniversary and the distinctives of these networks of churches were uh, reformed theology, uh, expositional preaching, and a, a belief that the gifts of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament are still active and, and um, relevant in the world today. So they contended for those kind of distinctives and they gathered around those distinctives. Well, in the evening session on this 30th anniversary, uh, there was a musical presentation. And it was really interesting if you were sort of on the outside looking in or at least not familiar with all the history of the movement. There's the beginning of this musical production. There's a woman standing center stage, a spotlight. The whole room is dark. There's a spotlight down on this one woman. She's dressed in sort of late 60s clothing. And the whole stage is dark, one light, and she sings a song called the gospel song. And the words are, holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross he took my sin. By his death, I live again. And she just is singing this just beautiful, simple song about the gospel. And then another light comes on 
on the other part of the stage. And it, there's a small group under that light. And they're dressed in like 70s garb. And they're singing this other song. And, and it, it's got some humor in it. And there's some laughing and some phrases in there that are just indicating that the movement of these related churches started to turn in the direction of like discipleship is the main thing in the sense of the, what was the so-called shepherding movement of the 1970s. And then another light comes on on the other side of the stage and now we're in the 1980s and another song joins in with these, all these other songs are continuing to go as the movement of these churches began to focus on reclaiming New Testament teaching on spiritual gifts. And so you've got more and more songs being sung and then at, toward the end of the production, all the other lights went out and all the other songs were stopped and there was just one light and one song. And that same woman who began it just sang, holy God in love became perfect man to bear my blame. On the cross, he took my sin. By his death, I live again. And then a couple thousand people stood up in the room and began singing it. And it was almost like, um, it was almost like a confession how did we get our eyes on anything else? Why did we start to believe that there was some other main thing than Jesus Christ and him crucified? Brooke Hills, there, there aren't a lot of hills that we're meant to die on. This is a hill that we die on. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all who is over all and through all and in all, one hope one spirit, right? These are the hills we die on. God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are no other gods beside him. We exist for the glory of this triune God. He made us and we exist to, to worship him. We are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Jesus Christ alone. If Jesus Christ, this is a hill to die on. If Jesus Christ had not died on the cross for our sins, bearing God's wrath in our place, we would be toast. We would be bound for judgment, bound for hell. One faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, faith that centers in the person and work of Jesus Christ. One baptism, that baptism symbolizing and demonstrating that we are united to the death of Christ and united to the resurrection of Christ by repenting and believing we're joined to his death and his resurrection. One hope that we proclaim to every generation and in every nation, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ is coming Again, one hope. Look, that can pull a church together, together for the gospel church. That is not some flimsy, you know, let's all gather around and sing Kumbaya. That, that is not some flimsy unity for all our differences. That, verses four through six, is a melody the church of all ages has sung together. That pulls the church around the gospel. Leads to the next point, the manner, the melody, the means. And the means in this particular text in verses 7 through 13 is biblical preaching. The means is biblical preaching. So Paul speaks of uh, how Christ has descended. It's a reference to his incarnation. Right? He descended into the earth. But the one, Paul says, who descended has also now ascended to the throne of the universe, having been rejected by men. And then having died on a cross as a substitute for sinners and then rising from the dead, he ascended on high to the right hand of the throne of God the Father. And there he rules over the cosmos. He is the king of the universe. 
even this, this metaphor that Paul is riffing on here would have been familiar in the ancient world. It was often the practice of kings. If a king led his army into battle, and if they were triumphant, the triumphant king would then ride back through his city in this sort of victory parade, leading the armies back through the city in this victory parade, and then he would share the, the plunder. He would share the spoils of his riches, the spoils of his victory with the people. And that's what Paul is talking about here. We've got it in our notes this way. Jesus ascends to the Father's right hand in this victory procession of the ascension. And what does he do? He shares the spoils of his victory. He, he gives gifts to the church. He blesses the people of the kingdom. And how? Look at verse 11. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. The one common thread of all of those offices, apostles and so forth, the common thread is the proclamation of God's word, the preaching of God's word, the apostles and the prophets. Those were foundational gifts to the church because of the apostles and prophets we have one of these. We have the scriptures, the apostles and prophets, the evangelists. This is an office. This isn't just um, someone who's motivated to share the gospel with non-believers. He's talking about offices of the church. So some believe this to be describing perhaps the work of the missionary. Speak of perhaps the work of the church planter, particularly in pioneering contexts where the gospel has not been heard before. Uh, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, who was a leader of the church at Ephesus, do the work of an evangelist. And then he goes on to talk about pastors and teachers. You could, you could hyphenate those because it's probably not describing two different people, but one person who does two interrelated complementary tasks. Pastor hyphen Teachers describing the office of the New Testament elder, the New Testament overseer, the New Testament shepherd. Those words, overseer, shepherd, elder, they're used interchangeably in the New Testament. And the ministry, notice though, the ministry of the word is described by what it produces, what it is meant to produce in the church. Verse 12, equipping the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of of Christ. We still need that. That hasn't gone away. That is not irrelevant for us in the 21st century. You remember, you remember the food groups in school. So when I grew up with the food groups in school, um, it was a little simpler than it is today. I remember looking at charts um, up in front of us in class and the chart basically told me, you got to eat meat. Like that's not an option. You need meat. And it said, you need dairy. You need milk. It does a body good. Uh, you need bread. Like bread was still in style back then. Everybody was supposed to still eat bread back then. And then fruits and vegetables too, you know, because we, we need some of that too. That, that was kind of the way that it was taught to me in elementary school. But the, friends, there are food groups, if you will, spiritually. And one of the food groups is the, the public proclamation of God's word biblical preaching gathered worship that centers on the the teaching and the study of God's word and what is biblical preaching meant to do above all biblical preaching is meant to show us the glory of God shining out 
from the text of Scripture, shining out from the pages of Scripture. I would say even, even in your personal study and in my personal study, the most important question to ask as you're reading the Bible, whatever text it is, is what does this text tell me about God? Asking that question. What does this teach me about God? So right here, let's just do that for a second. I'm not going to be exhaustive by any means, but here in Ephesians 4, what does Ephesians 4 teach us about God? It teaches us verse 4 through 6, God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It teaches us in verse 2, 3, and 13 that God loves the unity of the church. This is what he wants for the church. It teaches us in verse 6 that God is huge, that God is above all, that God is not like you and me. He is, he's not like you and me, but just with, uh, you know, he's older. He's not like you and me, but he just, you know, he's got steroids and a cape. He, he is in another class altogether, by himself, transcendent over all, majestic in glory, holy beyond words. That's what the word ineffable means. It means too holy to be spoken. He is that God. Verse 7 and 8 tells us something about the second person of the Trinity, the same Jesus who descended and was humiliated and rejected and crucified, ascended to the throne of the universe. He's high and exalted. It tells us in verse 4, what do we learn about God? Verse 4 tells us God loves to give people hope through Christ. That salvation is a calling into hope. Maybe you're, maybe you're watching here and you're not a follower of Jesus at this point. But, but you heard, even in the songs, I hope, even in the songs that we were singing a moment ago, you were, you were hearing the message of salvation, the central story of the Bible, that a holy God saves unholy people through the death and resurrection of his one and only son. That is the message of the gospel. And by turning, repenting of sin, turning toward God and putting our trust in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven forever, granted eternal life, adopted into his forever family, never to be let go, assured of heaven. And this is good news. This is the gospel that we gather around. This Jesus Christ who came and lived and died is coming again and all who have trusted in him will be with him in a kingdom of righteousness and peace and joy. Let me just say, if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ, oh, let me just, I don't know who's watching this. I don't know, where, I don't know if you're all in Birmingham. Probably not. No one needs to die in their sins who's watching right now. None of you. You can bring, I can bring all my sin to a gracious God who put his son on the cross to save me from my sin. There is hope in Jesus Christ. Friend, believe in him today. Believe in him and start living. Look to him and live. What's that have to do with biblical preaching? I want to do that every week. That's the main thing I want to do is hold up for us a glorious, mighty, saving Jesus who rescues us from everything. I want us to see that in every passage of the Bible, because the cross casts its shadow over every page of Scripture. That is the chief task of biblical preaching. We could summarize biblical preaching in, in this text as doing five things. It's not comprehensive. There's a lot more. But biblical preaching in this text does five things. It's aimed at mobilizing, in verse 12. 
equipping the saints for the work of ministry. It's to get the church active, not just the preacher active, to get the church active. It's, it's uh, edifying, the second part of verse 12. So even when there's correction, it's meant to build us up, not tear us down, but to build us up in our faith. It's unifying, verse 13. It's creating it together for the gospel church until we all attain to the unity of the faith. It's clarifying, verse 13. It's increasing um, the believer in the knowledge of God's son, increasing the believer in the knowledge of God's word, and it's sanctifying. That's why we talk about abiding biblically, pursuing transformation, because verse 13 talks about us becoming mature, growing into the likeness of Jesus Christ. So, so here's what all that means. When, when the rubber hits the road, pastors don't have to be funny. Pastors don't have to have life hacks and quick tips for how to do life and how to be successful. Pastors don't have to perform or be awesome or be professional communicators. Pastors don't have to be off the cuff or extemporaneous. Pastors have to, pastors get to uphold a glorious, sufficient Jesus Christ and his gospel. Pastors get to point to God's word and say, this is comfort enough for us. These words are for our comfort. These words are life and hope for us. These words are truth. These commands are for our good. And the best life we can live as a Christian is lived in radical, glad-hearted submission to every word God has spoken in his all-sufficient word. What a privilege that is. Brooke Hills, we stay here and God will make us strong. Let's keep looking. Let's keep looking at the book in our personal devotions. But every time we gather, let's look at the book. The manner, the melody, the means, and the magic. The magic, meaningful membership. Because that's what you see happening in verse 14 through 16. You see a congregation standing mature, no longer children tossed around, right? That's the vision Paul is painting of this preferable future that inspires present action, this vision of reaching maturity. Look at verse 14. Then, here's the desired future. Then we will no longer be children. Now, you might be thinking, didn't Jesus say we should become like children and those who aren't willing to become like children will never see the kingdom of God. Yes, that, that's absolutely something that Jesus said. But let me just say, by way of uh, when we go to work in scripture, when we go to interpret scripture, let's not make a metaphor say the same thing every time it comes up. That's just an interpretive approach that we take to scripture. So for example, fire, the metaphor of fire. Sometimes fire is doing very good things in the Bible. Fire is cleansing. The refiner's fire cleanses God's people. But sometimes fire is doing very bad things. Like the fire in James when he says, your tongue is like a fire and it sets, it sets relationships ablaze. There's good fire and there's bad fire. So you get into the context and you find out which one it is. So if you ask the question, should we be children or should we not be children? The answer is yes. It depends on the context of the text. So we could put it this way. God wants us to be childlike, but not childish. God wants us to be childlike, but not childish. The metaphor of children here speaks of believers who are vulnerable to error, who are impressionable to 
philosophies that militate against the word of God. And so they're tossed around is, is how it plays out. They're tossed around in the storm, in the swirl of cultural ideologies. They're just bouncing from place to place. In other words, they're not anchored. They're not settled in the truth in the midst of the storm. That's what God wants for us, that we would be not like children, but we would be settled in the truth as followers of Jesus. Look, by the time we get to the end of this vision, Paul paints for reaching maturity, we see a humble church, a gentle church. We see a unified church making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We see a church receiving the preaching of God's word. We see a doctrinally discerning church that's not flitting about, flighty doctrinally, but is anchored in God's word. And then we see this, the mature church doesn't just listen to the word, it speaks. I love that pivot right here at the end of the text. You see the church not just hearing the word and being equipped by the word, but speaking the truth in love. And, and it has this effect on the whole body. Verse 15, speaking the truth in love, let us grow. In other words, we can't grow to maturity if we don't start talking as members Speaking the truth in love. That's how a church builds itself up in love by the proper working is the language he uses there at the end. The proper working of each part. You need to know, friend. You need to know your spiritual gifts and you don't just need to know them. You need to use them because that's how Brook Hills becomes stronger. That's how the body of Christ, the local church becomes stronger. You knowing your spiritual gift and putting it to work for the building up and strengthening of the body. I'm going to wrap up, but let me just say the only healthy version of Brook Hills is the version where you're all in. The body building itself up as each member does its work, where you are taking things the Lord is teaching you and helping others to see them, where you are praying with people, praying for people, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, helping one another follow Jesus, helping one another love Jesus and make disciples of Jesus and grow in Jesus. And so I want to close with this. I read this book many years ago. It's called Why We Love the Church by Kevin DeYoung and Ted Kluck. I would commend it to you. It's, it's extremely well, well written. Um, but I was reminded of something. He, he writes a chapter there at the end and one of the authors writes a letter to his son and his son is only five years old. And the chapter is called Dear Tristan to my son regarding my hopes and dreams for him as they pertain to the church. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, but I'm gonna read a chunk of it. Here's what it says. Dear Tristan, by the time you read this, it might be hip to like church again. Right now it isn't, but lucky for us, you're five. And for you, church is just another place with good toys, friends, and lots of space to run. You love church now, and you love it for many of the same reasons we love it. You get to see your friends there every week, and you know they're going to be there because their parents and we have committed to being there. You get goldfish crackers and juice there while we get donuts and bad coffee, but the idea is the same. Friendships and relationships. You're getting to know people whom you hopefully know for a long time, because you share a bond in Christ. He goes on to say, I pray that one day you'll be able to ask your pastor about free will versus predestination. 
I hope you'll ask them about the Trinity, about infant versus believer's baptism, not because these are things that divide, but because it will be evidence that you care about your faith and hold it dear. Nothing would make me happier, son. I pray that one day you'll be able to articulate what it is that you believe, not because you'll want to use it to win arguments, but because you'll be passionate about sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And out of this good news, I pray that God will use you somehow. Pray that you'll always be kind, that you'll have a heart for those less fortunate than you, and will always be moved by the struggles of others. I pray that you'll be bold in professing your faith before men. Then he talks about some of the darker side of church life and the pain and the friction. He said, along these lines, I want to tell you that church is more than the soap opera that your mom and I make it sometimes. Doing life with people isn't always pretty. People don't always agree, and sometimes those disagreements can be unpleasant. You're not going to like everybody in your church, but my prayer for you and for us is that our shared commitment to Christ will overcome this too and will grow in love and respect for everyone in our congregation. Son, church isn't a magic pill that you take that punches your ticket for heaven, nor is it a glorified social club you attend to be around people who talk, think, look, and act like you do. It's a place to go each week to hear the word of God spoken, taught, and affirmed. It's a place to sing the praises of our God. It's a place to serve others. It's a place to be challenged. Sometimes you'll feel uncomfortable with these challenges because sometimes your life will need to change. This has been the case with me. It's about more than fundraising or networking or meeting a girl or even great things like serving the poor and reaching out to the community. I hope you'll always know that the Christian life isn't about what you can do for God, but rather about what God did for you on the cross. If this message isn't central in your church, you may need to find a new one. But for now, enjoy your toys. Enjoy your Sunday school classes. And I'll try to do something with the piles of paper you bring home from them each week. Enjoy your friends and enjoy the knowledge you're acquiring about the Christ that you invited to live in you, who revealed himself through scripture and about whom we can know things. It's only through Christ that I can do even an adequate job as your father. Love always, dad.